Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is London Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. I can't help noticing that we're in the East End again this week. We were in the East End the last couple of weeks, and in fact, we seem to have started to move in a tight little circle around the Whitechapel, Bow, Roman Road area. Completely accidental, I promise. If you're so inclined, you can start laying your bets on which part of town we're going to be in next week. Before we get underway, a quick shout out to Glenn Hodge, Accessible Joe on Twitter, uh, top marks as well to Adam Wilson, who has gone the extra mile and installed a Londonist lock screen on his phone. And uh, I want to say hello as well to the exquisitely monikered Alex Chidley Utley, who tweets, I am engulfed by N. Quentin Wolfe and his Londonist podcast series, currently listening to Dead in the Water en route to Chester. Uh, Come on, be engulfed by someone and their podcast series. I suppose so. Why not? But that episode came out a couple of years ago, so there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, I'm going to hedge my bets and say, happy 2018, Alex. Meanwhile, back in the present and uh, inevitably in the East End, I offer you this week's show. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. As late autumn, early winter days go, this is simply stunning. Blue sky as far as the eye can see. Uh, Well, that's not true as far as the eye can see. Upwards, as far as the eye can see. Towering above us are several towers, and they're going to form at least part of what we're talking today. The gold lettering of the Cranbrook estate here in the East End is glinting in the sunshine. Also glinting in the sunshine, John Boughton, author of the Municipal Dreams blog. Hi. Hi, good to meet you. (laughs) Likewise. And, well, what a day. This is cracking, isn't it? It's beautiful, yeah. I was a bit, a bit worried about having an outside recording, but uh, I think we, we chose well. I'm quite so. And there are seagulls around, which I think, doesn't that mean that there's trouble at sea? You wouldn't know it here. Uh, people feeding the pigeons just down there. I'm not sure I approve of that. Um, I'm not going to ask you to comment. <laughs> should we, actually, no, no, should we go and stand next to the people feeding the pigeons and, uh, and then comment on the people feeding the pigeons? Sure. <laughs> you're, you're game for that. No, I'm not going to put you through <laughs> Municipal dreams, let's start there. What is, uh, what's your blog about? Well, it's a blog about the pioneering achievements and reforms of local government. Uh, it it's, uh, has a strong focus on what I still call council housing, um, because council housing has been probably the most significant innovation of, of uh, local government over the last 120-odd years. It's made a massive difference to people's lives. I think it's a neglected topic. Uh, it's an important topic obviously in in terms of the current housing crisis so my my task i suppose is to is to take a sort of hopefully a fairly unblinkered fairly realistic but but also a celebratory look 
at what cattle housing has achieved. Yeah, that's remarkable. As soon as you've brought that up, I realise that I'm well aware of the origins of, for example, the NHS, but it's only you saying that that's made me realise I know nothing about when council housing started, or I can, I can just about imagine why, but it's much less trumpeted. Yeah, well, it goes back to 1890. Um, it goes back to the Housing of the Working Classes Act of 1890, and in a London context, it goes back uh, to the... Well, actually, first of all, to the R- Richmond Borough Council, which was then in Surrey. Uh, I, my claim is that uh, Manor Grove in Richmond is the first completed council housing in what is now London. But when we talk about London, obviously, and talk about council housing, we really think about the London County Council. London County Council itself was formed in 1890, and we're not too far away from the Boundary Estate, which was the first major project completed by the LCC in 1900. And when we think of council housing, what we don't think of is Richmond, of course. We don't, but um, Richmond had its share of slums and uh, very dilapidated working-class housing. Uh, It also had uh, a particular individual, a liberal activist, William Thompson, who was a council housing pioneer. And really through his own energy and efforts, he was the person almost single-handedly that persuaded Richmond Borough Councils to take this this on. Uh, And it's a small street of council housing about 64 houses i think but fine 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 housing still in good condition still well looked after so and i guess we need to deal with this very very early on it's not obviously a sexy subject i mean if you're somebody who's interested in history and interested in the fabric of london and society more widely of course it's of massive interest and should be of massive interest how could we persuade somebody who is thinking about council housing and thinking as maybe a dreary, identikit housing in quite often run-down areas? How could we persuade them that that's of interest or of relevance? Uh, it's a good question. I think, first of all, uh, given, given the current housing crisis, social housing does have an enormous role to play. Uh, it's part of a mix in terms of owner-occupation, private rental, etc. But um, given our failure to build housing that particularly in London, people desperately need. The history and legacy and record, an example of council housing, is actually still uh, a vitally important and relevant one. More broadly, uh, I'm a social historian, so I think uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the lived experience of, of ordinary people, and council housing has been an enormous element of that over the last uh, 120-odd years. So in 1981, 770,000 households in London lived in council housing. Um, so it's obviously been uh, something like 32% of the population. In Tower Hamlets, where we're standing now, that figure reached 82%. In Southwark, it was 66%. So anybody with an interest in the lived experience of ordinary Londoners should be interested in council housing. The current figure, uh, well, 2011 figure, was 440,000 households living in social housing, so that's about 14% of the population, but still obviously a significant proportion. Mm. And what, what does that do? I don't know if this is something that you'd be easily able to assess, but what did that do, do you think, to the general mindset? And let's pick a place like the one we're standing in, uh, upwards of 80% of people in the same situation as regards their home. Does that result in some sort of institutionalisation or a different a general mindset? How, do, how does that affect how people think about themselves and their lot? You know, it's very mixed. Uh, you know, council housing isn't, isn't homogeneous. It's a, it's a huge range of uh, types and forms. And it, obviously, you know, if we're talking about 770,000 households, we're talking about a huge range of people. So I would, I would really contest any attempt to stereotype or 
particularly as has been the kind of media issue over recent years, to, to denigrate council tenants. Oh, good grief. Uh, I hope you don't think I was trying to do that. No, I, I had much more in mind the idea that uh, if you've got everybody with sort of one landlord, basically, then if the landlord makes a change, then everybody's going to feel that change all at once. And I, I, I was sort of wondering about the, the, the vibe that that would produce. Yeah, well, no, you're, 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 you're quite right to raise it as an issue, and there is an interesting politics around council housing. Um, you used the word institutionalisation, obviously, which I kind of slightly bridle at, but um, I guess that would have been the perspective of, of Mrs Thatcher, for example, when she took office in 1979, she very much had the idea that uh, council housing was problematic, and it was problematic in, in, in a couple of ways. One was that she did think it was part of dependency culture, and, which stifled enterprise and initiative. She had a, an ideal of a property-owning democracy. Um, and the second was that she thought that uh, council tenants were disproportionately uh, and for sort of self-interested reasons uh, regarding rents and conditions and so on, uh, labour voting. So, in a sense, mm. and I'm making a good case for Mrs Thatcher, well, not, not one that I agree with, but I'm p- putting her case forward. She, in a sense, she thought that she was liberating council tenants from the sort of benign tyranny of, uh, of, of council housing departments. There's a row of trees to our right here, just catching the late afternoon sunlight and off to our left one two three sizable tower blocks that looks like about uh, 12 15 stories there are some lower blocks they're about four or five stories a piece and uh, well we're, we're surrounded on all sides really and uh, well places like this have a bad rep sometimes don't they the term council estate can have particular connotations in people's mind is any of it deserved there's no doubt that council housing went through a, a very difficult patch from the 70s into the 80s, and there's no doubt that a particular storyline took hold at that time. It's a very complicated picture. I mean, I certainly record that stuff in the blog. Uh, there's no doubt that a lot of uh, even showpiece estates, such as the Cranbrook estate that we're standing in, suffered problems at that time. There was a certain, certainly a demonisation, and certainly, you know, without doubt, uh, problems of antisocial behaviour and criminality experienced by some estates. I always put that in a context. I think uh, one school of thought blames council estates, blames the sort of ownership, design, the ethos of council housing. My own research, which is pretty extensive now, I think, I've looked at a lot of estates uh, in London, but up and down the country. Yeah, I've, I very much think that was situational. It was about a moment in time. Um, it reflected a couple of things, two things were happening at the time. One was that politically, legislation, uh, the 1977 Homeless Persons Act, a labour labor reform, a well-intended reform, gave priority to certain uh, vulnerable groups, t- typically single parents, families, people with, with, with health issues of various types. That's a very progressive reform. But it did, at a time when less council housing was being built, and even more so into the 80s when there was no council housing being built under, under Mrs Thatcher, it did send a message and create, to some degree, a reality that council housing was for the poor, the most poor, and for the most vulnerable. And if you, if you do house a lot of people in a particular area, if you house a lot of, to use the uh, euphemism, vulnerable people in a, in, a, in a particular area, you are going to have problems around that. Typically, 
even in, even in the, the worst days of council housing, people would always say, tenants would always say that there were a few problem families. They, would, they had a disproportionate impact. They, you know, their antisocial behaviour has a, has a real kind of impact on, people's, on the way people live. Um, well, particularly if everybody's so close together, if you put somebody making a big noise in, in one of these flats, then everyone's going to hear it. Yeah, although having said that, of course, the flats are always, uh, you know, council housing is, is almost invariably good quality housing. The, the build standards are high, uh, the noise insulation is good. So, you know, typically once you close your front door, you're absolutely fine. But um, certainly there was concerns about public space, shared areas and so on. So, so there were problems. The other thing I'd, I'd say at the time about this, this sort of the, the worst days of council housing, if you will, is that it really reflected what was happening to, within the economy, within society more broadly. It reflected the time when a traditional working class economy was, uh, traditional working class employment was being devastated by, well, I call it Thatcherism for shorthand. Uh, basically, you know, our industrial economy went down the pan. And so council housing, which had, you know, historically council housing had been reserved, not deliberately as much as such but had been really the prerogative of, of, of a relatively affluent working class uh, a working class that was employed and could pay the rents that was a, a prerequisite that they were expected to be able to pay the rents regularly um, so if you look at the the long history of council housing you see it certainly into the 50s 60s as being housing for a relatively well-off working class into the 70s and more so into the 80s that traditional working class is disappearing so council housing and, and estates suffer enormous problems as a result of that, uh, that economic shift. Those families presumably aren't ceasing to exist, are they? They might be changing the jobs they're doing, but presumably they, they're still in need of somewhere to live. I remember back in the 80s, you, the, the term single mother was a pejorative. And if single mums are taking some of the flats, where are the families who are changing occupation where are they going well i mean the first thing you have of course is enormous waiting lists for for council accommodation and it's only the priority groups the so-called vulnerable groups which are being rehoused at this time so a lot of people i mean obviously there is a rise in owner occupation i don't want to sort of paint a black and white picture um in the 80s of course this is uh, diminished since then but in the 80s there was a rise in working class owner occupation so people were buying houses if they were in employment Otherwise, of course, people were stuck in the private rented sector with, with not much option of getting out. You mentioned that the Cranbrook Estate is, uh, I think you said it's a flagship of some sort. Uh, so what does the Cranbrook Estate represent? Well, it represents, uh, in my view, some of the finest uh, council housing built. It's significant, apart from being a good and decent home for many people, is that it was designed by the architect Bertolt Lebedkin. It was built by... Bethnal Green Borough Council, uh, the, the local council until 1965 when it became incorporated into Tower Hamlets. And Bethnal Green Metropolitan Borough Council was a, obviously given the area, staunchly Labour council, um, but a progressive council. And one of its priorities was to build good housing for a population, which was then, of course, overwhelmingly living, living in slum terraces. And they were ambitious, as I say, to build well. So they commissioned... Uh, Bertolt Lebetkin, um, who was a, a, an artist engineer, uh, he was a constructivist, he, he, he was born in Georgia in witness of the 1917 revolution, he always maintained these socialist principles, always uh, operated by the, the motto that nothing was too good for the workers, uh, he was the architect of the Finsbury Health Centre, which is a wonderful building built before the war. 
So Lebetkin, so it's a, it's a fine example of Lebetkin's idealism, but also a, a, a great example of the energy and idealism of uh, Bethnal Green Metropolitan Borough Council. It's, a, it's an interesting estate in terms of its design. It's, uh, should, should we describe it a little? Yeah, let's, let's, let's try and describe it. Um, so you, what you see, what we can just about see from this vantage point, is, as you pointed out to begin with, some tower blocks, some point blocks. These are sort of 15-storey to 11-storey, I think. I think there are six of those, if I remember correctly. And there are also four storeys of... Uh, four blocks of four five-storey housing. As I look to my right, I can see sort of two-storey flats. And as I look to my, my left... Um, you can, we can only see the back of them, unfortunately, but it's, it's one of the most attractive and uh, eye-catching elements, although one of the smallest elements of the state. Are, should, should we wander around there as we talk? a series of yeah. uh, old people's bungalows. So what you have in all is a, is a wonderfully configured estate in, in architecturally. It's, it's a very deliberately designed to move from the high-rise, it's at the back end of the state, looking, looking ahead, to the low rise uh, fronting on Roman Road the blocks but incidentally and it's a good way to see it today are all angled so they all catch the sun in different ways the, the, the shadows are sort of constantly moving and yes, you don't feel like you're down a canyon do you? no absolutely not no I mean as I say the overall configuration was, was absolutely vital to, to Lebetkin's vision of the estate um, have you been in one of these? I haven't. I haven't been inside, no, which is a shame. Perhaps maybe somebody will let me in one day. Should we pose as vacuum cleaner salesman, isn't it? Yeah, we could try, couldn't we? <laughs> um, and the other element of it, so apart from the very careful overall architectural design, what you also see is a, a mixed development estate, so-called, uh, which was the kind of big idea of the post, post-Second World War period. Um, a range of housing types and forms which would suit a range of the population. So that's why you get the tower blocks, but also equally why you get some of the smaller masonet homes and particularly the old people's homes. So you have a range of housing to suit a range of needs. Do we stick a date on this? Uh, we could do, yeah. It started in 55, I think, it was, uh, and it was finished in 1966. Oh, OK, so this overlaps perfectly with the whole... It doesn't look what I think of as brutalist, but it overlaps with that idea of cities in the sky and all that stuff that was going on at the time. Yeah, very much so, actually, because... Um, you were talking about kind of people's stereotype of council housing a bit earlier on and certainly the stereotype which is another factor of course in the negative image that people have of it sometimes is is, is high rise this was a uh, in, in 1955 this was an early example of high rise it was high rise was excuse the pun just sort of taking off at the time and it peaks uh, another pun it peaks in 1968 in 1968 is the year which the Ronan Point uh, tower in Newham collapses fairly disastrously uh, four people killed um, so that's always taken to sort of symbolically mark the end of high rise but um, yes yeah, certainly into 68 uh, something like I think I'm trying to remember now 20, something like 25% of housing was, was high rise at peak I've, I feel like I need to know because we, we, we've talked a little bit about the 50s we've certainly touched on the 80s but I feel like we need to cast our line right back to the beginning and, and see how these develop you mentioned Richmond yeah. what was the growth of council housing how did it establish itself what sort of housing was it who was going in there 
Yeah, well, so, so Richmond was a slight outlier because uh, uh, it was a very rare for a, a, a borough council or sort of a, a, a local council in that sense to, to build council housing. But um, as I said, London, London County Council, the LCC, was, was, was definitely the, the pioneer of council housing in London, but, but also as an example across the country. So as I mentioned, um, the LCC comes into being in... Uh, 1890, the Boundary Estate is, the, is, is uh, really the first council estate built in the country, opened in 1900. And that's the one where they bulldozed what was there, basically? They bulldozed the old nickel, they bulldozed uh, an area of slums, built what are, I think, still very fine-looking tenement blocks. Um, the problem, this refers back to something we were just talking about, the problem with the Boundary Estate was that, uh, in fact, all, none of the people that lived in the slums could afford to live in the council housing so although it is theoretically built as to rehouse the slum working class that simply wasn't financially feasible uh, i think about 11 people moved from the slums into the new estates a tiny minority of the slums were kind of dispersed but it did set a precedent something in london of something around 10,000 10, council houses were built before 1914 so you before the first world war so you've got the boundary estate you've got uh, millbank uh, near Tate Britain, which is another fine estate, and a few, and a few others dotted around as the major, uh, major schemes. And um, what became more typical was just a kind of five-storey walk-up tenements, which are still fairly ubiquitous in London. It's a model that was sort of pursued right into the even into the post-Second World War period. Um, pres- presumably, the need for council housing is going to shoot up around the time of the First World War. Yeah, and uh, the big, the big. The massive boost towards to, to, to council housing. So up to up to 1914, council housing had emerged, but it was uh, a fairly kind of uh, sm- well, a very small scale development, and there was no national impetus. It really depended on the energy and sort of politics of, of, of individual councils. But the First World War makes a huge difference, and is really the start of kind of the story of council housing as we currently understand it. Um, and the significance of the First World War, of course, was was a that it contributed to a, contributed to a massing, massive housing shortage um, that built up during the war. And there was also that sense, of course, that the working class had to be rewarded for their, for their sacrifice, the sacrifice of life and limb during the First World War. Uh, Lloyd George f- fights the 1918 election on, on the, the slogan, Homes, Homes for Heroes. They also worried, of course... By the threat of revolution, 1917, Moscow, uh, Russian Revolution is a is a terrible warning of what happens if the working class is too discontented. So, so council housing emerges in the post First World War period, both as reward and, if you will, as a sort of um, a sop, a pacifier, a, a pacifier, exactly. Because yeah, because the unions were uh, very lively at that time, and uh, Ireland as well. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a period of genuine turmoil. Yeah, very powerful Shropshire movement during the war. Uh, un- trade unionism had risen massively during the war. The Labour Party emerges, although it's still a small party of around 50 MPs, it emerges as the official opposition in 1918. So there is a perceived threat, uh, even if it's not a revolutionary threat. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a concern that the rise of Labour will will threaten the established parties. Lloyd George, as a Liberal, is particularly keen to challenge that. So it's the 1919 Housing Act which really starts council housing as, as we kind of understand it today. It uh, not only empowered 
councils to, to build council housing. That, that had been the case from 1890, as I mentioned. But it actually required local authorities to build council housing. So 1919, they're off to further uh, Acts of Parliament in the interwar period. But um, from 1919 through to 1939 in London, something like 119,000 council houses were built. So you have a massive, an exponential increase on the 10,000 built before the First World War. Oh, we, we stopped suddenly. <laughs> I, to be honest, I was just riding the 20th century now. Yeah, well, we can, we can, we can, uh, yeah, we can carry on with that. Um, yeah, so, so you're, you're now delivering a lecture. You really? <laughs> I know. Sorry, it's my. Uh, I, do, I have a teaching background, so I can. Uh, <laughs> so you can do this. Talk, talk to talk to readily. So the interval period takes you really establishes the kind of what became the parameters of council housing in, through to the through to 1979, essentially, and through to the very changed world of, of Mrs. Thatcher and and the new right. So. In the immediate post-First World War period, you have a range of very good quality council housing being built. You have um, one of the most beautiful estates, uh, sticking with London again, is is, um, the Dover House estate over in Putney, arts and crafts-inspired cottage, a cottage suburb, so-called. This was the sort of main form of council housing built in the interwar period. But when we think of... Um, the so-called cottage suburbs we're talking about two-storey housing of course in this context uh, when we think of those in London we probably don't think about Dover House but we think we, we, we will think of the, the, the massive interwar states such as Beckentry over in Dagenham Beckentry is start, starts in the immediate post-war period it's, it's, it starts in 1920 it's not really I mean it's, it's an ongoing project Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But it's still, by 1939, it has a population of 120,000 living on this enormous estate that's the largest council estate, probably the largest council estate ever built by, by most calculations. Um, but you think of Beckentree, you can think of the Watling estate, you can think of Downham and so on. Uh, this was the great kind of work of the LCC in the interwar period, primarily these, these large cottage estates. At the same time, there's a realisation, which again addresses something we talked about earlier, that um, the cottage suburbs are not suitable for the, the poorer working class living in the inner city slum areas. They can't afford it, they can't afford the travel costs involved, etc., etc. So in 1930, the Labour government uh, inaugurate uh, the 1930 Housing Act requires that council, councils redirect their efforts to prioritise the clearance of slum housing and the rehousing of slum population and that's actually strengthened by the, the, the coalition government in 1935 so you do have from, from the 30s this focus on clearance of, of slum housing uh, the second world war for obvious reasons is, is, is a pause in this uh, during the second world war all efforts are directed towards victory uh, so housing of course is problematic uh, there's no new housing to speak of built during the 
45 period. Slightly less housing uh, night by night, in fact. Well, exactly. Something like one million homes in London were either destroyed or damaged. Good Lord, as many as that? During during the war. Um, So so in 45, it's really, you know, episode two or episode three, perhaps, of of the story. Um, So, again, of course, you have politically a desire to build a new Britain, but this, this time much more powerfully given the, the, the Labour landslide in 1945. The you know, Labour comes to power in 1945 on the slogan, you know, you, you, you won the war, now win the peace. That was the fam- famous poster of the uh, Labour Party as it fought that election. So there's very, very much a sense that people, that the sacrifice of war and the kind of popular effort that war represented required a reward uh, in terms of essentially a new and far better housed country in the post-war period. And I suppose it would be generating much needed employment also. In terms of rehousing, yeah, I mean a lot of it, so so in the early year, early post-war, post-Second World War years, you're talk, really talking about replacement of housing that had been damaged or destroyed. But then, okay, so let me just jump in there, because what I think I'm seeing, if I've got this, if I've got this sort of shape in my mind uh, halfway accurate, late Victorian period, we're talking about sort of single innovators getting involved and that seems to be the signature of the Victorian period right across the 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 picture not just housing but all sorts of things is that you'll have inspirational inspired individuals uh, rolling up their sleeves and making big things happen and then between the wars something a lot more to do with uh, organization and and getting big uh, administrative projects sorted out and and providing all sorts of things for, for masses of people 60s it sounds like there was still some of that that big vision going on with how with how people were looking at social housing and then then it all seems to go wrong well certainly in the 60s you're absolutely right i mean it's from the mid 50s uh, just to sort of circle yeah. back briefly basically the kind of replacement of of of, of lost housing is largely complete so from the mid 50s there's another drive towards slum clearance and the redevelopment of what was what we're seeing correctly as very obsolete and uh, run down you know, Victorian Edwardian terraces. I know these are the houses now that people are spending, you know, paying a million for in London. But there's a real problem, I think, with romanticising the nature of terraced housing, the, the old working-class housing of that period. If you look at the figures, you know, most people were sharing baths, most people had outside toilets, uh, the facilities were poor. So there's very little, at the time, very little nostalgic yearning for the for the housing conditions that they represented. So from the mid-50s, definitely you have this uh, renewed drive and it goes right through really to the, to the end of the 60s. Uh, massive effort uh, on, on, across the political spectrum at the time to, to rehouse Britain. You, you talked about the kind of the, the political vision, if you like, um, to, to give you a, a sense of how you know the priority given to council housing, uh, you know, in 1963, the Conservative government under Albert Millen pledged to build um, 350,000 houses a year across the country. Obviously, um, Labour, the Labour opposition pledges 400, then 500,000 houses a year. Um, Were they delivering on that? They came close to it at peak in the late 60s. Um, I think something approached something like 400,000, I think, at peak. So there was absolutely a sense that um, housing was really the, the prime need and, and almost the, the, you know, the most important political issue of the, of the, of the time. And then 
Well, I, I remember that the 70s, the economy fell flat on its face. And it, the, the general impression I get is that from that point on, really the only concern that anybody has is um, making money, saving money, vilifying anybody in society who's costing us money. And that all of those big visionary projects and those visionaries, I'm not conscious of those. Yeah, well, it's... It, it, I mean, there's a lot going on, you know, so it's really hard to kind of uh, capture all the dynamics of, of what's happening to housing in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. I think to some degree, council housing was a victim of its own success in the, in the, in, in the 60s. They really did build massively uh, in some areas, you know, the housing shortage was, was, was solved. Uh, it is a period of relative affluence, so there is, as we mentioned, rising working-class owner occupation. So there's, there's a subtle shift. First of all, there's a subtle shift, and that is council housing. Council housing had always been a step up. It had been something that people aspired to. It was, uh, with no shadow of doubt, better housing than most working-class people had known. Really? Because really? that's, that's something I've never... Uh, that's never been on my radar. No, absolutely, no. I mean, and... and uh, you can you can look at you know virtually every estate and you and you get these various you get these various kind of newspaper interviews at the time or you get some get some get the oral history with people looking back you know the, the times people will sort of say what well, it's like moving into Buckingham Palace it was you know it was it was heaven with the gates off that was somebody moving into the Beckintree estate so up to the sixties there was a sense that work, you know working class, uh, cattle housing was a step up the social ladder as I say subtly that perception shifts. Into, in, into, into the 60s, into the 70s uh, as uh, more people are able to buy their own homes and so cat housing shifts slightly from being sort of uh, become slightly less desirable I suppose and slightly less aspirational into the 70s there was a kind of I, th- I think yeah, there is a there is a backlash against some of the kind of over, overweening ambition some of the kind of uh, larger scale developments of the 60s I mean you know there's no doubt I mean I'm as is obvious I think uh, a great defender and champion of casual housing but you know you can't be blind to the fact that uh, mistakes were made that some estates weren't well built or well designed and that simply you know on occasion simply the scale was was too overbearing can i just j- drill into that a little bit because i'm very conscious at the moment of this r- resentment culture that seems to be pervasive and one could imagine if you if you were thinking like that you might think people who single parents these uh, i know people coming from abroad and uh, getting a lovely plush estate newly made for them but it doesn't sound as though actually that's what we're talking about here it's not what you're talking about in 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 the 60s in the 70s uh, but 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 there is there is a shift in the 70s as i said the legislation is partly partly responsible for that because waiting lists grow and those with 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 housing need are prioritized uh, so there, there is a resentment um, that's an interesting phrase you use, by the way. Those with housing need, as though there is anybody without housing. Well, absolutely, no. It's, uh, that, that's 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 uh, it's quite right to pick me up on that. Um, those with the most pressing housing needs, those people who who really were in some kind of crisis or emergency, were the people overwhelmingly that, that got housing from '77 onwards. If we, if we want to be controversial, we're in uh, Tower Hamlets. There were tensions around immigration, as it as it then was, uh, ethnic minority population getting housing, and again, it is the case. You, you know, you have to understand this and talk about this stuff subtly, you know, to avoid the kind of stereotypes or generalisations. It was the case from from 1977 that uh, black and minority populations that had hitherto been housed 
overwhelmingly in the private rented sector and uh, given their sort of given the discrimination they suffered almost overwhelmingly in very poor private accommodation so from from the 70s minority populations previously previously hadn't been sort of major beneficiaries of council housing because they didn't have sort of long established residency and so on from the 70s it is the case that um, uh, minority populations getting council housing in greater numbers so there are tensions there are tensions around you know I'll, I'll, I'll lapse into the kind of pejoratives of the time if you will you know there were tensions that as you said single parents uh, seen as this you know, demonized group jockeys people with mental health problems and so on that they were receiving council housing and people that had been on the waiting list for a long time were effectively excluded from any possibility of council housing so so there is a shift at that time there is a shift and of course from 1979 uh, well with 1980 you have right to buy Mrs Thatcher introduces right to buy I think, I think if I'm remembering something like 1.1 million council houses were sold were sold to, to their tenants in the decade that followed what do you think of that? Right to Buy. Right to Buy is an interesting one. Um, right to Buy wasn't invented by Mrs Thatcher. Uh, the Labour Party actually put it in their 1959 manif- general election manifesto. So there was, uh, and local councils, obviously typically conservative local councils, had sold off council housing previously. In principle, there's nothing wrong with the right to buy. I mean, this is, um, in, in my personal opinion, and there are issues around monotenure, there are issues around sort of very homogeneous populations. Nye Bevan, of course, just going back quickly to the post-Second World War period, Nye Bevan was the Minister of Housing, talked about the living tapestry of a mixed community. His belief was always that if council estates were solely occupied by the sort of poorest in society, that would be a, a very negative, be very bad for community, very bad for social cohesion. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a positive principle to, to mixed tenure and even in that context to right to buy the problem of course is that Mrs Thatcher when, when it's introduced by the Conservative government in 1980 the problem is that right to buy is a, it's, a, it's an ideological weapon it's designed to effectively destroy traditional council housing it's, it's part of that kind of demonisation of council housing council tenants that, that you've raised and the problem with council housing specifically was, as it was implemented, sorry, with right to buy, as it was implemented in the 1980s, is that as these council houses, these 1. million council houses were being sold, none were being, virtually none were being built to replace it. Oh, right, that, that would differ from when it was it first mooted yeah. in 1959, because no, at that point they're competing to build houses. Well, absolutely, and the, and, and the sense was that, you know, if, if councils were getting uh, getting receipts from council house sales, that, that was money that could be ploughed into to building new houses for people on the waiting list for people that needed homes. Mrs Thatcher specifically uh, pro- prohibited local authorities spending the receipts from right to buy no, no new council housing was built in the 1980s. Um, her idea was a property-only democracy. She believed council estates, council tenants were sort of benighted communities. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because you, you, what we've talked about, or just in sketching the history of, of housing in London, uh, slums, often privately owned, and terrible private rented conditions, and we... It, I guess we see now, I can think of plenty of uh, adverts on Gumtree for housing. I wouldn't go within a mile of those. I'd much sooner have a look at one of these flats just here. 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people in the private rented sector that would be uh, very, very happy to get a council house or council council home of some sort. And the irony, of course, with, with right to buy, if, we think, if we're thinking in the London context, is that 30% of former council homes which were originally purchased by tenants have now been sold on and are now in the private rented sector. And in some cases, which is the kind of utter lunacy of the current politics in some cases in, 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 in quite a few cases those please, please, please don't tell me the council is paying for council tenants to move into the private places. Yes, the, ca- no. the ca- council is, 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 uh, is either, you know, sometimes it's directly renting them or, is, or, or alternative of course what we're doing is paying housing benefit I mean the irony of course is that we were, we're spending massively on, ca- on, on, on housing but the form that we're choosing to spend it in the moment it's not in terms of actually bricks and mortar building houses for people that need them but actually paying paying housing benefit to private landlords it's a massive waste of resources it's a massive diversion of state income and revenue to private landlords i'm not slacking off for every private landlord of course and we need a private rented sector i'm not sort of making that kind of sweeping generalization but uh, in terms of the kind of cost benefit it's uh, it's a uh, it's a ludicrous equation there's a name that's been lurking in the back of my brain while you've been talking, and it's a, a name that I've heard so many times. I don't know whether this person is going to be relevant to the conversation. Who, who was Rackman? Oh, Rackman, yeah. Well, Rackman was, uh, I, I believe it's uh, uh, Notting Hill, I think, I believe, a, a, a landlord in Notting Hill. And uh, When are we talking? We're, to- we're talking uh, 50s, 60s. Yeah, he was a notorious slum landlord who used fairly uh, unorthodox, well, let's say, let's say fairly criminal methods in order to sort of uh, shift, shift tenants in and out of his properties to maximise his, his profits. Very low-quality private-rented housing, of course, but on sc- uh, at scale. The irony about Rackman, just to, again, just to, to be sort of balanced about this, is that he, he, he did, uh, at a time when... You know the the cliche, and I won't use the word, but the the posters went up in windows, sort of saying, you know, no no Irish, no no blacks, no no dogs. Apparently, there was there was heavy discrimination against uh, minority populations uh, who who needed housing uh, in the private sector. Uh, Rackman would rent to anybody. So for that reason, given the kind of you know, not only was it was it low quality housing, it tended to be overcrowded housing because people were kind of crowding in to you know a relatively confined section that they were open to he sounds a delight <laughs> he, 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 i don't think it was a delight no he, he was a product of his time i guess we've just got a few minutes left to i suppose try and bring ourselves we've mostly located in in the present now i guess with the mm-hmm. uh, councils sending their needy people off to private landlords and paying big bucks for it what else can we say about the the trends in council housing are they suffering the same sort of fate as housing generally in london in other words not being built first thing i'll, I'll again I'll, I'll track back first of all because um we've, we spend a lot of time and uh talking about sort of council estates council housing as as as, as problematic as being in, in poor condition or, or certainly poorly regarded the new labor government which came in in 97 was also unsympathetic to council housing i.e housing owned and managed by local authorities um, it was unsympathetic. Unsympathetic, yes, very much so. Um, I thought that was a government full of compassion. Well, uh, I'll, uh. <laughs> what the, they, the Labour, Labour government sh- shared an antipathy towards 
council housing departments and, and their management and, and ownership, they were more something to social housing. So this is, we have a sort of shift in the jargon, but also a shift in the, the form at this time. Mrs Thatcher didn't build council housing, but there was a move to build far more housing under, under the aegis of housing associations. So, when we, so nowadays when we talk about social housing, we're talking about housing which is overwhelmingly either... Some, some are still directly owned and managed by councils. Uh, a large proportion is, is, is owned and managed by housing associations. So what you, what you have in the 80s under, under Mrs Thatcher, but this is actually a policy which is pursued even more strongly by New Labour, is the transfer of council housing to new, uh, what they call registered social landlords. And these were either housing associations or, in some cases, the sort of hived-off housing departments now operating as kind of semi-independent entities. So that's one major shift. Social housing is, is with us. It's still important, as I said. A lot of people in London still live in social housing. Social housing is being built, not in the numbers that we need, but it is being built and of course even today as we speak Sadiq Khan's announced the sort of new London rules uh, on affordable housing that's the sort of the other game in town at the moment affordable housing which is a very problematic phrase at worst affordable housing was 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 defined by the uh, conservative government as 80 percent Housing rented at 8% of market rent, which is not affordable to most people in, in housing need. No, even, even people on decent money. No, no, it's, 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 it's a ludicrous figure. It's, just, it's, it's completely unfeasible. I know Sadiq Khan is talking about the uh, London living rent, which I think is supposed to be one-third of sort of average earnings. So, so there are moves... The other other sort of element in the mix of so-called affordable housing is you know shared ownership, rent to buy, etc., etc. What we had in into in, into the sixties and seventies, well, yeah, you know, through through the story of council housing up to seventy nine, is a pretty simple model. You know, essentially you have subsidies from central government, council council borrowing in order to build housing. You know, the, the word subsidy is is is, is probably a, a flawed word in the context because these were grants which were always paid off so council housing by and large has paid for itself time and time again over the years um, and of course people paid you know realistic rents but post 79 you have a very different model and essentially looking to to a much more complex system of funding uh, use of private capital etc etc what i did want to say in reference to the sort of negative image that council housing acquired uh, historically is that um, New Labour, although it was very unsympathetic towards council landlords as such, did invest in very significant improvements, decent homes, the so-called decent home standards. So if you look at um, council housing or social housing, as you should call it from, from this period, if you look at social housing, you've got most estates now, um, there's been massive investment, there's been really significant improvements. You can see it in terms of the general quality of, of, of the homes and facilities. You can certainly see it in the landscaping and upkeep. So, you know, I, I, I visit a lot of council states. It's very rarely that, you know, I, I have any impression whatsoever that you know, these are unattractive places, that these are undesirable places. Council housing, currently, social housing, is, it remains good quality housing, as it always has been. But it remains, uh, to my eyes, and I think to the eyes of most people that live in it, attractive, decent housing. 
what I would say is that, uh, you know, in conclusion, I guess, is that politically, we, we're, we're unfortunately we're living in a time w- uh, where there is a, an antipathy to towards social housing, towards uh, public, you know, public housing. But in terms of the current housing crisis, as part of the mix, it remains as as, as vital today as it ever has been. I've got one final question. This could put a, a different spin on uh, everything you said. I don't know. Uh, it might not at all. Uh, I might underscore it. But it's clear where you're coming from on the principle of, of principles of uh, council housing. Have you ever lived in a council house? No. Hmm. <laughs> Intriguing. Um, yeah, no, I mean... Th- <laughs> Uh, that's an that's an interesting question. I'm I'm always, and I'm always prepared for that question, although slightly underprepared as, as as you ask it to me. Just ask it ask it me just now. Um, no, I think you know. I think uh, it's hard to. I mean, Britain is a very class ridden society. So if you want to, if you if I I can place myself in class terms very precisely. I I, I come from a pretty fairly humble but lower middle class background. So 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 my dad owned a house, bought a house. That's that's my my particular heritage if you will council housing has been predominantly working class housing i'm not working class but i am a historian of the working class and i'm a proud proud to record that history yeah and and i wouldn't uh, just in case there's any uh, sense in which a listener might perceive me to be delaring you from uh, having being an expert on the subject uh, i think if we were talking to somebody about roman history we'd, we wouldn't expect them to be roman no <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's fair enough yeah um, where can people read more because you're, you're a prolific blogger where can people uh, read more yeah thank you that's a quick plug uh, so municipal dreams one word municipal dreams dot wordpress dot com you'll find me find me there and I'm always really interested to hear uh, from people who live in council housing or, or who have recorded a, a local history um, I'd like the blog to be seen as a resource for this broad history uh, in London and across the country so I'd be delighted to hear from people as, as would we and uh, from a, an increasingly chilly I've got to say the sun's, sun's gone away and it is parky so from a, an increasingly chilly Cranbrook estate John Bowden thanks very much thank you uh, good talk That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to John Boughton, thanks to, to Sue Sinton-Smith and to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.